0: Eleven minutes until showtime. Ten minutes until showtime. Nine minutes until showtime. Eight minutes until showtime. Seven minutes until showtime. Six minutes until showtime. Five minutes until showtime. Four minutes until showtime. Three minutes until showtime two minutes until showtime one minute until showtime your show will go live in five seconds four three
1: two one make sure sound right, this is a real special treat for me today also i'm just almost giddy beside myself because today we have a special co-host with us who is a woman that i've known for a very long time For 31 years, actually. Since 1986, we met... And I'm going to take my time and have some fun with this introduction because it's just such a treat for me. And this doesn't happen every Saturday here. And there's so much to say and so many memories of fun times and joyous occasions that we've spent together. Lots of love, some tears and some pain, too. And I remember back in 1996, I was hanging out with a guy named Anthony and Anthony said, well, do you want to come with me to this party tonight? I was like, sure. And the party was at this woman's house. And so I went there. There with him and i met her and honest to god this is the truth i have never seen anthony again a day of my life i may have talked to him but i don't recall ever seeing him again on the other hand i saw her every single day for like probably five or six years during that summer of 1986 we had a lot of adventures we clicked immediately we were together every day i'm gonna tell one story out of Hundreds that I could tell you today This will be one show where there's more left unsaid Than there is said uh, But I'm going to tell you this one story You know, We hung out at the nightclubs I was 20 years old in 1986 And I was going to school in Baltimore At the University of Maryland And I would come home during the weekends And then during the summer Which is the time that I'm talking about now You know I was at home all the time So we were together all the time I worked at that time at Blue Cross and Blue Shield In the evening my mother was the head of personnel So she got us all summer jobs And you know, everybody in the family had a summer job Because my mother was you know Taking applications as they say So I worked from 4 to 10 Paying medical claims And literally When I got off at 10 o'clock If I went home Which probably many times I didn't But if I went home I would go home Change my clothes And then I would pick up Judy And then we would be Hitting it To some watering hole Some nightclub Some spot Either in Washington Or in Baltimore So many stories But this is the one That I really want to tell you And Judy got us invited to See if you remember this Judy She got us invited to a pool party I did not know the people who lived there but she did and so we went to the pool party and it was the house of a woman named Myrtle I remember that her name was Myrtle and we went to her pool party Had a good time I remember sitting at this table in the backyard where the pool was and there was this guy that was there I don't remember his name we were all drinking and having a good time and he clearly saw that we were best friends and I remember him saying to us the two of you all are going to get married see if you remember this Judy the two of you all are going to get married and I looked at him like what is he talking about and he said it's very clear to me that you all are best friends and you ought to marry your best friend and I thought that is really wild and what I most remember about that night is that I passed out I got so drunk that I passed out on the carpet inside the house in the living room I think think it was the dining room I passed out on the carpet and I remember being somebody tapped and me trying to wake me up in the wee hours of the morning. I finally woke up. The party was pretty much empty. They were trying to get me off the floor to get me out of the house. And they finally did. And as we were leaving, Judy, who was wearing these very tall platform sandals, Judy fell down the driveway. It was literally like a tumble down the driveway and scraped her knee. And only by the grace of God did I'm sure we got home that night, but we did. But here's the thing. Shortly after that, I don't remember how long after that it was. Maybe, I don't know how long it was. If that was, I don't know how long it was after, but I was working at the Urban League doing a radio show there. And I was the director of communications. And we had a new board member. And so to celebrate the arrival of this new board member. Onto the board of the Washington Urban League She held an event at her house For all of us And as I was driving to the event In the back of my mind I was thinking I've been in this neighborhood before I think I know I've been around here before And then when I pulled up in front of that house It was the same house That we had gone to that pool party before And my heart started beating (laughs) fast And I started sweating I was like oh my god This is the same house And I walked in and it was the same woman The new board member Was the woman whose house House that i had gotten drunk at and passed out on her floor and i was praying that she would not remember and if she did please don't call me out and so we met again and she kind of this could be in my mind this part right here i felt like she kind of gave me the side eye but that could have been guilt but she never said anything and i remember siding up to her at the buffet that she had set up at her house and we were talking and stuff and just you know sort of laughing and stuff and i in my mind i could feel like she knows and she wants to let me know that she remembers but she never said anything And I remember thinking, wow, you just never know how these things are going to turn out. So the lady whose house that I passed out at at her pool party eventually ended up being pretty much my boss sometime later. And so a lot of things. That's just one of the adventures that I can tell you about our co-host today. We have spent many nights chasing Patti LaBelle's limo (laughs) across Washington, D.C. after going to see her at the Budweiser Superfest or Constitution Hall or wherever Patti was, that's where we were. I mean, we were Patti, Patti fans. And we spent many nights finding out where she was and trying to get to see her and all of that, even though I, I wasn't in touch with Judy at the time, but all of that came up in my mind, you know, years later whenever I was working with Patti LaBelle and producing a special with her. I never told her some of the specifics. I did tell her that I used to chase her limousine at RFK Stadium in Washington. I shared some of it with her, but because I was in a professional capacity and I was working with her, I didn't share with her how just how much of a geeked out Patty fan I was back in the day. But Judy was there for all of those memories. So I'm gonna let it go for there and just welcome on my friend from Long, long, long time ago, and I'm so happy that you're here today, Ms. Judy Martin Coles. Welcome to you.
2: Hello, Robert. How are you doing, <laughs> sir? Um, now, you know I was getting a little angry there when you were talking about sharing stories. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to share too many of those stories. Uh-uh, we don't. What <laughs> goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas. Yes, Lord. But I do remember that party, Robert, and you never told me that you went back over to that house. Mm-hmm. But uh, we had some very, very interesting times. Yes. And more than one person told us that we should get married. I used to love going down to Ocean City. Yes. With your family. Yes. I was part of the family. Yes, for sure. They, everybody did have like, their arms wide open to me. Exactly. And it was so tremendous. We had such a good time. Yes, it was we did. So much fun. So right? much fun. But the thing is, is that you have to grow up. <laughs> okay. Yes You have to grow up so, And that's what we proceeded to do I think Robert The most important thing That I want you to know Is this A long time ago I spotted success within you And I always told you Robert, I want to work for you one day because you're going to be famous. And you have gone on to have an excellent career. I am so proud of you every time I see your name on a television show or something. I mean, you are... You're really a One cool dude Thank you And Mom. I never Will forget All of the Wonderful Wonderful times That we shared Because it really Added to my own growth
0: mm-hmm.
2: As you know I went on To teach Yes After all those Wild years And I taught For 19 years I taught English At Eastern I taught at High. I taught at A charter school One year And I ended My career Out here In uh, P.G. County.
0: County at Fairmont Heights High
2: School, mm-hmm. but you know, God is not done with you yet. Because anybody with your talents, your mind, your intelligence, and your skills, there is a project with your name written all over it. Honey.
1: thank you, Jesus, you Hallelujah! Know? I receive it.
2: Yeah, I receive yep. it.
1: I do want to say you that.
2: And I believe it. I
1: receive it and you believe it and it is done and so it is as mm-hmm. they say. I will say that yes. this is a very real part of life that a, a lot of people don't like to talk about and we'll see if you want to talk about it or not. But I've watched okay, my... Okay, Okay, when I look at the street that I grew up on uh-huh. my next door neighbor to the right Mr. and Mrs. Ferguson are both gone. Mr. Ferguson died first. He was right. a colonel in the army. He died first and then Ms. Right. Mrs. Ferguson died a couple of years ago. And when she died, okay. her daughter was living in the house. Alicia lived in the house with Miss Ferguson taking care of her. Alicia has been overweight for many years. She's obese and she's had her own health problems and when her mother died she was not able to keep that Mm -hmm. house and live in it herself. She had never really gone out into the world maybe once or twice very briefly and worked and made a living Uh for herself so she wasn't in a position to hold on to the house. As a result she sold the house. She and her two siblings sold the house, split whatever those proceeds were and Alicia had to go live in a nursing home in district heights a group home where she's living okay now. i'm at the age where i have to we have to prepare a plan mm-hmm. for ourselves of what we're going to do when our parents are gone okay. i always tell my mother this the next big milestone in my life is life after them right let's see how and i'm a push and you tell me if it's too much and we'll stop okay I it. all right i just want to because this is real conversation that people in our peer group are grappling with every day that's just where we are in the life cycle that whole conversation of because i think about it for myself if they were to go tomorrow my challenge is to keep this home in the family so it is a question that many people are looking at and making a plan around It also throws me back to questions about my own life. For example, Robert, have you lived your life in a way that has prepared you to assume this responsibility? Robert, have you saved up enough money to do this? Robert, do you have the financial security moving forward to keep this house and the family? I mean, these are real questions. And I bring up Alicia and the Fergusons because I watched my neighbor who I grew up with not being able to do that. And seeing the house leave the family's hands, I've seen that up and down the street that I've grown up on and the children not being prepared to keep it.
2: I can already assure you that this house will not be in this family unless Spencer and his family want it Mm -hmm. because Judy Martin Coles will not be able to afford it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not interested in living in this big house by myself. This was mama's dream house. Right like i said i don't require all this i thank you jesus that i have the ability to live here now while she's here because i'm here to take care of her we're here to take care of each other which is great but as far as trying to hold on to a piece of property stress myself out uh uh-uh no
1: Okay, I'm pushing. Um, I'm pushing now. So, you know, I'm pushing. Okay, go ahead. I'm pushing. I'm looking at my life choices and saying, okay, Robert, you spent a good 10 years, good solid 10 years. You've done drugs, smoked weed a lot longer since you were a teenager. You did a good solid 10 years of addiction that during my active addiction, I didn't make the best choices. I didn't save the money. I didn't hold on to the jobs. I didn't make choices that would build my life. In fact, to be really honest with you, I wasn't even really Mm -hmm. thinking about the future. I'm not making married. I don't have a partner. I don't have children. What kind of future am I building for myself? Because if I'm honest with you, I didn't even think I would be alive to be an old man. So I didn't even think about it. It wasn't something, especially when I knew you, I really wasn't thinking back then what my life was going to be like as an older man. I'm just saying that part of that midlife crisis for me. If I wanna call it that, mm-hmm. is looking back over my okay. life and examining some of these milestones and examining some of my choices and saying, Robert, you could have done a better job. Where was I? Why wasn't I even thinking about
2: Yeah, but don't don't uh uh-uh. uh don't kick yourself, don't second guess things. There's nothing that you can do to change. What well, has already transpired. Okay,
1: now that's the response you know, of someone I, that's the response of someone who loves me. And I understand that. To me it's not beating myself right. up. It's just understanding the root causes of why I am where I am today. And I think that's a valid look back. It's not a beat that up. Is a
2: valid look back. That's a
1: valid look back, okay, Jim. That's valid. It's a va- it's a valid look, look for you to say and well, I'm I, I'm putting it on you now that's this is the push. It's a valid look for you to say okay. why am I not in a position to right. take on this house when my mother passes on? That's a valid question. That's not a beat well, up. Well,
2: I'm not and the valid answer is because I don't want to. That's my valid answer.
1: Right.
0: Being alive, Love
3: those positive vibes With a man who don't mind taking a chance It's Robert Wesley Branch Be well, be encouraged, be inspired every day Hey, hey, yay! Be well, be encouraged, be inspired
1: every day
2: It's the Robert Wesley Branch Show.
1: Miss Judy Yvonne Martin Coles.
2: Good morning, (laughs) Robert, Wesley, Brand. (laughs) How are you doing this blessed morning, sir?
1: Just wonderful. Just wonderful. How are you doing today, love?
2: I'm doing great, honey. Been up. You know, I have a prayer routine Mm and ritual, so I get up early and I start my day off like that. Right, right. Been ready to do the show for you.
1: I appreciate you. I love that morning ritual. It's so important.
2: It's cleansing Mm -hmm. and it's... Starts the day out on just the best note.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It's very important to have that prayer time where it's just you and God and Jesus and Mary. Right. So, you know, I really enjoy
1: it. Getting control of your thoughts like first thing in the day, like even when you're still in your bed, is important. Seize oh, those yeah. thoughts because right. if you're not careful, right. so many times depending upon what's going on that day or in our lives, you just start thinking of all the negative things. You wake up and think of all the negative realities. He's
2: always ready to throw his spear. He walks the earth and looks Way to seek, kill, and destroy. Mm-hmm. We always have to be on the lookout for old snooper. We have to have our guard up.
1: Mm-hmm. It's so important, so important.
2: yeah. But anyway, I'm gonna tell you how we first met. Okay, Adrian and I were giving one of our infamous house parties <coughs> on Rochelle Avenue, mm-hmm. and. You came in the door. I don't even remember who invited you. You were a plus one.
1: Exactly.
2: Cal, you went from being a plus one (laughs) to being the only one. You know, they were so jealous of you, Robert. Really? Oh, yes. Because you were around the corner Right And every time they would call me I was like Oh Robert and I Are going out Or they would see us Together in Baltimore Right Because every time We would go to Baltimore You were the one driving Right And we was in Baltimore What? About twice or three times a month If we didn't go on a Friday Right We went on a Saturday Mm -hmm.
1: Okay Mm -hmm. I remember one night You and I Sitting out in front of hats Because we heard That the owner Who was a drag queen Named Miss Pebbles was friends with Patty, yep. and Patty had a show in Baltimore. Yep. And the rumor was she was gonna yep. come by hats after the show. <laughs> you yep. and I sat in yep. front of hats yes. forever. Until <laughs> about three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> exactly. And,
2: and, and nobody saw Patty. And Patty, nobody saw Patty Labelle. But Pebbles was friends with Patty, right? For real, in real life. But that was the rumor that night. That right. was a rumor. Yep. Part. You know how you can talk to somebody and they never matured past the point right. where you knew them a right. hundred years ago. Yep, yeah. Still stuck in the same mentality. Do you remember when we used to hang out and see all them people in their 50s and 60s? mm mm-hmm. And we would say we would never be like that because
1: mm-hmm. it's pathetic. You and I coming from the neighborhoods that we came from and coming from the families that we came from were different, a different rhythm. Yeah, yeah. I know myself specifically I remember I must have been maybe 19 or 20 No I was 20 when I met you In 86 so I would say maybe I was 20 21 it might have been the summer of 86 But I remember standing in the top Of what was it called back then It was on that corner remember that corner I remember standing with you Upstairs and I was drinking a Heineken Which was my drink of choice at that time And I remember leaning against that bar Drinking a Heineken and looking at all the way Against the wall in front of me there were these tables And it reminded me of Cheers Because these same brothers would come every night Or every night that I was there And be laughing and joking And and as a 19 year old looking at that They might have only been 35 But to me they represented old men Because I'm only 19 Exactly. And I remember looking at those guys And saying to myself If I don't do nothing else in my life I will not be that At that age Coming in here And
2: that's a conversation that yes You and I did have Yes. Because we would witness table 50 and 60 year old men and women yes and we would be like that's pathetic yes because what are you looking for
1: right right i was thinking yeah. this morning when is the last time i actually saw you and the last time that i remember seeing you tell me what your memories are is when you were moving uh-huh. out of a house in district heights remember that day you were moving out of that house okay yes yeah, that was
2: the last time you saw me it wasn't District Heights, it was Capitol Heights.
1: Capitol Heights, okay. It
2: was off of Old Central Avenue.
1: Okay, Capitol Heights, yeah. And I
2: was moving into Walker Mill Hall apartment. Okay. That was when I had left DC Public Schools and I started teaching out here at Fairmont Heights High School. I left DC Public Schools in 2004. I went to a charter school for a year, and then I went to Fairmont Heights.
1: Okay, that sounds about right. So that's 18 years ago that we saw each other physically.
2: Yes, yes sir, yes sir. That's too long. You know what saved our lives, Robert, Mm -hmm. from the death and destruction that we could have ultimately faced? Yes. We had some praying mothers.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: We had some praying mothers. Lord have mercy. Yes. Prayers were being said on our behalf
1: mm-hmm.
2: by our mothers. Yes. And Jesus kept us. Right. We both have Virgo mothers. hmm mm-hmm. And they have a certain spirit with them, especially about their children. I know that both of our mothers are very proud of us. Right. Because regardless of all the partying we did, you know, we both got sober around the same time. I don't know if you realize that.
1: 2010, I got sober.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Regardless of all the partying that we did, Mm -hmm. nobody went
1: to jail. Right. Well, the closest that we came to going to jail, see if you remember this. Remember when Crystal was driving my car that day and she ran into the back? Oh, yeah. Remember that? And we were on the side yes. of the road. That's the closest that no. we came to going to jail. Now I ain't gonna get into the details, but I remember some specific things no, that you that you and I did jail. not to go to jail that day. But
0: oh, please yeah,
2: though. please
1: don't. No, don't we crash. we ain't going down no, that I rabbit know. hole.
2: No, we don't need to go down no <laughs> rabbit
1: hole. That was a <laughs> long time ago. That was over thirty years
2: ago. That was a very. Yeah. that was a very long time ago. Yeah,
1: but your point is well yeah, taken. I, we could have it could have been over for us then. As I remember this, it was interesting for me because you met Crystal through me and you all became closer than you and I were. And so you and I sort of faded off and you and Crystal sort of kept it going in your world. So that was interesting as friends. It's just like and I think his name was Anthony, who I came to your house party with anthony i knew very casually it was very casual he said what you doing tonight i said nothing he said i'm invited to this party i went with him to the party i ain't never seen or heard from anthony again that was a gateway to meet you okay right and for you and right. i to have our right. story our story was a gateway right. for you to meet crystal and then y'all had y'all story you right. know so right. it's, we're older now and, and we're looking back on those days which were very long ago we're talking about 1990 for me and crystal yeah. i met her in 1985 whenever i moved from the dorms right. Right. at umbc right up to the apartments and right. she was right across the door from me in the apartments. I met Crystal the day I was moving into my apartments in 1985, sophomore year of college. I was moving uh-huh. in. I was blasting Patti LaBelle. I had the windows up. Patty was singing probably mm-hmm. New Attitude or Stir It Up or something. Whatever was happening in 1985 right. and I was blasting it right. and Crystal walked in the open door of my apartment, they said, who is blasting all of that Patty LaBelle in here? Because she was a Patty fan. Right. And right. that's how we met. Right. So as I look back on that yeah. whole crystal experience, that was someone that the angel sent for me for college. Like that was right. the purpose that we had exactly. for that period in our lives. And it was good. We right. had some good times together, but that's what that was for. That wasn't supposed to be somebody right. who was in my life all of my life. I knew that even then. No I knew that even right. then That she right. wasn't somebody Who was in my right. life For the duration But I enjoyed my time with her Yeah my story with yeah. Crystal Ended in the early 90s And I never heard Or saw her again Yeah But listen Robert mm-hmm.
2: Another thing is Even when we were In our separate addictions, mm-hmm. We were still able to be Very successful professionally
1: Right That's and true There wasn't nothing but God. Yeah. Okay? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm gonna be very careful how I talk about this, but I do want to say this. I remember back, and I'm not gonna call her name out, but you know who I'm talking about. She had an apartment on Euclid, and you and I would go to her apartment, and we would do things at that apartment. Part of me remembers that as a wonderful time. (laughs) It's the time in the life cycle of a human being where you're exploring, and you're doing things, and you're carefree, and you're young, and you feel like you're invincible, and you're just out there seeing what life is all about. And you and I had a lot of those times together. Together with this other person that I'm thinking right. about, and I don't remember feeling. I know
2: it- exactly who you're talking about.
1: Exactly, I remember sitting on the floor with you and that person at that apartment, and really having some really good times. And yeah, we were doing some things, but we were learning Yay. and growing and experiencing what that period of our life had to offer us, and it was great. I don't remember right. that as being a bad time for me. And at the same time, you're right. I had good jobs and was doing things, and was on the radio and was working for good organizations. I remember you working for Prentice Hall Publishing when I first met you right you know and i would go with you right. to the hill and stuff so there were two yep. tracks going on is what i'm trying to say there was a good positive track yep. and there was the underworld we had a foot in both yep. worlds we right. had a foot in right. both
2: worlds and we did not let the underworld drag us down mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because
2: like they say you've been raised right right we were raised right and during the time that we were being raised, our heads were always in the books. Mm-hmm. We were very academic
3: during our school years.
1: Okay, well, on and that note, I want you to listen to this, and let's talk about it on the
3: other side. Okay. Buffalo is a okay. very important part of my development. I left when I was about 18 and went to Mortgage years and was involved in the early communications department there. Yeah. Uh, we did a radio show and Judy came on the campus and the history. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Now were you all on the same grade level? Yes, we sat next to each other at the commencement. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, Judy worked with yep. me on the radio show Motivating Forces and we were quite activists then, if you will. It was during the time yeah. of the uh, dismantling of the um, black colleges. Mm-hmm. and we became quite engaged in political and cultural activities there. Judy was a brilliant reporter and a and writer. She helped us tremendously because she was just uh, a scholar on the campus. Wow. But this was 1978, 79, 80. Mm-hmm. I did
1: meet Adrian Grant several times because Adrian and Judy were roommates. And when Judy and I were hanging out, she had her own apartment. I was still living with my parents, so we often ended up hanging out at her house
3: with Adrian. So I knew Adrian from those days when I was hanging Mm -hmm. out with Judy. Well, maybe that's when we met. You know, Adrian was there with me, too, at Morgan. Okay. Mm -hmm. The plot thickens. Mm -hmm. I think Adrian left a year before us. Mm -hmm. I think she did. Mm -hmm. Left a year before us and went on to teach. Mm -hmm. We were all family. Mm -hmm. Judy, Adrian, Mm -hmm. her brother Tony and I, were roommates.
1: Mm-hmm. You know who that was,
3: right? That was
2: my ex-husband, <laughs> Kyle Christopher Cole, mm-hmm. who was living in New York for a long time. When we got married, he was living in Newark. We got married in 2008 in Las Vegas, and I moved to Newark, and I was up in Newark for less than a year.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: We separated long before we got to divorce. hmm the divorce became final in 2012. Okay. But Cal and I are still very close. We still text each other. We still talk. You tried to set me up at Discovery Channel. I remember that. You went through your employment agency mm-hmm. and. You set me up with a little assignment, paid good money, too.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You were just trying to help a sister out.
1: Right. I remember that discovery gig. That was That's around 1996.
2: I'm thankful for all the blessings Right. that God has given me. Because he has truly blessed me in a hundred ways mm-hmm. throughout my life.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I could have been dead in my sin. That's right. At any moment. That's right. You know, because I have walked in darkness mm. and spread through to the light.
1: Listen, I've been, I've walked through a lot oh. of that darkness with you. Oh yeah, honey. <laughs> I understand.
2: Yeah, I don't want your business out well, there. I'm
1: just saying, I put it <laughs> out there. I've walked through that darkness okay. with you.
2: Yeah. We both were able to come through. Mm hmm I appreciate all the good times we had, bad, dark and light, Robert. Yeah. You know. Totally. Because they all added to the adults that we became. Yes, no doubt. So Running
1: out to pay the bill all over town. Oh, my goodness. Okay.
2: That was legendary. Oh, that was legendary. Your mother
1: and father (laughs) used to look at us like we were idiots. It's
2: so true. But look, they loved us to death.
1: Totally. They appreciated the passion okay. that we had for Miss Patty Labelle. We have known each other for a very long time, like 36 years is a oh, long yes. time for somebody in my life. And we're yes. both well into our adulthood and well into our older adulthood. So I just want to oh, talk yes, to you yes. about aging and how you have received aging and if you ever went through a midlife crisis and just how you think about being in an older person as opposed to those days when we were chasing Patty LaBelle's limo all over DC and doing all these things that we've talked about
2: previously well thank you Jesus thank you Lord thank you Mary thank you God I am so glad that I have accepted my aging process gracefully mm-hmm. even with the health challenges that I have faced having to learn how to walk again and all that uh, learning that with patience and learning what the lesson is that God was trying to teach me. I have no problem with aging because there are a lot of us, Robert, who were not able to age gracefully
0: mm-hmm.
2: or even to age. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of us who were not able to age in the light they left here in the dark.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But because of God's mercy, they'll be okay.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. I look at the elderly around me and I look at how, especially my mother and her friends, how they have accepted their aging process. Mm -hmm. And I gain a lot of grace from that also. I haven't had a midlife crisis, Mm -hmm. uh, I think that that's something that probably will more so affect someone who went through the birthing process who had children. Mm -hmm. Since I never had children, I never went through a midlife crisis. Mm -hmm. I'm just glad I'm able to age, Robert. Right. I thank God for every day. And when it's time for me to go home, I'll be fine with that also. Right. I'm not scared of dying right. or anything like that because I know that that's something that we all have to do. Right. We're not here to stay. We both are blessed.
0: hmm
2: Your parents are 87. Yep. My mother will be 86 mm-hmm. on August 26th. And we are blessed. Thank you, Jesus,
1: mm-hmm.
2: that we've had our parents <clears> this <throat> long.
1: Yes, it's so true.
2: Because I have so so many friends mm-hmm. who do not have their mothers
1: to fathers you mentioned yeah. not really having a midlife crisis because you tied that more to people who have children and I was thinking about that when you right. were talking about it because I've really been thinking a lot about this lately the last time i was on Uh a television set with the yama when we were finishing up that show some of the dudes on Uh the, the younger brothers on the set would start calling me like uncle robert and i was like it hit me one day like Okay, to them, I'm old. Like I'm older. So I'm Uncle Robert now. And they said it very respectfully, but it was the first time that I had experienced the younger generation sort of putting me in that space. And
2: Well, you have to understand that coming from teaching Robert, honey, I've been called grandma since I was four. Right. Uh. (laughs) When I'm out in the street, I got children everywhere. They call me Ma. Hey Ma, Ma, Grandma so i had already gotten used to that when i was 40 years old okay yeah
1: I experience middle age and how potential employers are handling me. It's not like a 20-year-old or a 25-year-old or a 30-year-old. They're looking to see do they want to make an investment in somebody who's 55. Most of my life, I've always been the youngest one breaking into these circles at the Urban League, moving up the way I did at Discovery. Like I've always felt like the young titan, and now it's really not like that.
2: It's the millennials interviewing you.
1: Exactly, and even the ones after them is I think it's generation Y, you know, generation Z, generation X. Yep. They're even after. So it's really, really interesting in that sense to realize, oh, wow, I've moved forward in the life cycle, in the process. Right. I'm in a different place now than I was. then. so I experienced a midlife crisis in that sense of being able to clearly see the younger generation who are hungry, (laughs) just like I was when I was at that age.
0: Right. Right.
2: Okay. In response to that, Robert, I will say this. God has been preparing me for mama's death since I was seven years old when my father died. <laughs> because after my father died, I was always like, when is the time going to die? I was waiting for the other shoe to drop. I mean, of course, now I'm in a comfort zone because I'm like, she can't be here forever. Her time is going to come. Right. I will be at peace. Now, as far as this house and what's going to happen, of course, me being on a fixed income, I'm not going to be able to stay in this house and pay the mortgage and pay the bills. And plus, I don't want to live in this big house by myself. We want to mow the lawn and all that. Right. So I told my mother, I said, for me, it doesn't take much. I said, I can rent a room. And there are plenty of rooms to rent out here in PG County. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to turn, whatever it is, whenever it happens, whenever my mother goes home to glory, I know that God will show me what to do next. Right. I'm like, I can't, I'm not going to worry about it. Mm -hmm. It's not a concern of mine because first of all, I know that time is limited. Because you don't know what God has planned. I might go before she does. We don't have any clue. Mm -hmm. I don't foresee myself having to go into a nursing home. right? Just because I don't foresee it, that doesn't mean it may not happen. Mm -hmm. Whatever happens will be whatever God's plan is for my life. Mm -hmm. And wherever I am, my rosaries and my Bible will be coming with me. I still will be praying every morning and thanking the Lord for His blessing. You're not the first person to ask me that, Robert.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Because it's something that is a normal question to ask people whose parents are elderly mm-hmm. and whose parents have property. I already know I can't afford to stay here by myself. Money has never been uh, something that I hoarded or cared about.
0: Mm-hmm. Never.
2: I'm like you. I didn't make the wisest of decisions as far as saving. I'm a month to month girl on a fixed income. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. That's my financial status right now. Right. Month to month, fixed income. What did Jesus tell us? If you want to be about me, give up everything,
0: mm-hmm.
2: take up your cross. And follow me None of this material stuff None of this money Nothing None of these clothes Shoes None of this stuff Is going to help you When we cross over Mm Mm-hmm it's not going to help. God says in his word, well, through his son Jesus, it will be easy for a rich man. I'm not. I'm paraphrasing. Come
1: on. You're doing good so far. Come on rich,
2: now. For a rich man to get to heaven through a needle, mm-hmm. through the eye of a needle. Mm-hmm. Because money is what, Robert?
1: Temporary.
2: What is money, Well, The root of all evil.
1: Right. The love of money okay? is the root of all evil. The love and
2: of so it. And so the love of money mm-hmm. is the root of all evil. Who was Judas and the disciples? Judas was the money man. He handled all the money. Judas was what? The betrayer.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of you the know? things that I remember, even when <laughs> we were hanging out back in the 80s, and it's really important to contextualize a lot of this because I've done a lot of traveling, and I can tell you, and the statistics bear this out, Prince George's County, Maryland, in the time that we were coming of age, in the 80s that we're talking about, was one of the, if not the, fastest-growing population of African Americans with money. That was a oh, rich yeah. county. Oh, yes. I
2: think PG County is still the richest so county do I. for black people so in I. the country. So do I.
1: In the country, exactly.
2: Yes, it's still number one exactly. in the country. Mm-hmm.
1: I'm raising that uh, to say that when you and I were out driving around in my Jetta and going here and eating places and buying shrimp and lobster, that's just how we right. lived.
2: It was just what we were used to. Exactly. It was how we were raised. Exactly. And I understand that you have a concern with what you're going through. You can term it a midlife crisis. I think you're using that term because of the professional situation, not because of any mental situation. I mean, we all get to a place As we mature Where we become outdated
1: Right, that's true For myself, I would language it this way And I see artists doing this You have to constantly, as a human being Keep evolving with the times Look at the senior citizens that you know Like the people that are at your mother's age And my mother and father's age Who never learned how to use computers They let time just pass them all the way by They didn't continue to evolve with the technology So that's tricky Okay, so we're talking about evolution and evolving with technology i'm gonna try to connect some dots here and you tell me where you are on this when i listened to kyle talk about the brilliant scholar on campus that judy martin was at morgan state university in the late 70s he mentioned ruth t Sheffield who was a professor there yeah and he also mentioned that you were on the ida b wells scholarship or doing some scholarly work around ida b wells he mentioned in that clip When you think about that person, because I know that mind, that was part of the attraction for me when I met at your house party that night. Funny. And this mind was there and present. I really was attracted to that and your work at Prentice Hall. And your years as a teacher, as an educator, now that that part of your life is behind you, and as you say, you're on this fixed income with all this time ahead of you, how do you see yourself evolving those talents and those gifts to write and to think? Where's that expression in your life Well, you know
2: what? Okay. Now, Robert, I don't know if I sent you any of the short stories that I wrote when I was in Atlanta. Writing is a gift that comes and goes, God gives you a talent like that. Mm Mm-hmm. It's not forever. It's not a forever talent. Just as quick as he gives it to you, he takes it away. How am I using my talents now? Robert, I'm enjoying the time that I have right. with God. I'm enjoying my spiritual growth. Mm-hmm. I'm enjoying the increase in my faith. I'm enjoying my knowledge of the word. There are things that are more important I'm still gaining wisdom, but all of the wisdom and everything that I'm focused on,
0: mm-hmm.
2: I'm focused on Him. That's my focus now because I don't have to go to work every day, Robert. Thank God.
1: Right, right.
2: Okay. Free at last. You know, free at
1: last, I, thank God almighty. <laughs> I'm free at
2: last. <laughs> thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Yes, Lord. Um so glad that I have a psychiatrist
0: mm-hmm.
2: who is helping me, who has helped me so much with my bipolar.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I am so thankful and grateful that this weight, this tremendous weight that was on my body and right. on my legs, has come off and i have the ability to run up and down these flights of stairs right right to wash clothes it's like you do a lot of reading Robert. Mm-hmm. and i know that from your podcast mm-hmm. you read a lot of books i do that's i love your it. thing. that's my
1: thing <laughs> that's my thing
2: and i admire that about you i don't have the ability an english teacher who taught secondary english well, over 20 years. hmm That's an ability that I lost. The only book that I'm able to sit down and read is the Bible.
1: Mm-hmm. That's I, a good I choice, though. You know. That's a good choice.
0: You know what
2: I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. I don't have the ability to read anything else. Uh, you know, I was an English major. Mm-hmm. So, you know, especially coming from Oregon State University, honey, they didn't give you but one class to read a book. Mm-hmm. Okay, (laughs) You would go to class on Monday and they would say, have this book read by Wednesday. So yeah, I was a brilliant scholar, Mm -hmm. but I didn't have a choice. And being a teacher, of course, I had to continue along that vein because that was something that I wanted to hand down to my students. I don't have to do that
0: anymore. Thank
2: you, Jesus. Well, see how you You feel about
1: this. See how you feel about this. As an outsider looking in on your life over the past 36 years that I've known you. And we have this in common. That's why I think and I know. Not I think I know That we've known each other And I don't even know If you believe in this But in other lifetimes Our souls knew each other Before they came to this Lifetime Because Uh That's the only thing That explains to me Why we just went there So quickly in one night Because we knew each other Before But I do want to say this That you know When you're 55 You lose your train of thought So I may have just lost My train of thought On a tangent But let's see if it will Come back to me Where was that that too. (laughs) Oh, Oh yeah Let me suggest this I would say As an outsider Looking in on your life life that one uh-huh. of your spiritual gifts is and always was to be a communicator. And sometimes you've done that oh, yeah. as a reporter, sometimes you've done that as a radio person, sometimes you've done that as a school teacher, but your lifelong gift is of communicating. And so even though you don't go into a classroom anymore, social media you've evolved because we're talking about evolution and yeah. how you evolve. Social mm-hmm. media has allowed you to evolve to still have an outlet for the expression of your ideas and communication. And you still are very active with that so yeah. that's how you've yeah. evolved it out of the classroom you've continued to express your ideas in the public space and i think that's okay. important for you okay. do you see that
2: yeah yes sir yes sir and i wholeheartedly agree yes yes that was a significant point
1: yeah Because I appreciate in that I see you It's not in the classroom anymore But that lifelong gift That God has given you Of communication continues And I would invite you Particularly because You're so into your spiritual studies Which is really what this podcast Is all about To come on anytime And let's talk about These Bible things And spirit things Because I don't know If you remember But I'm a lifelong student Of the Bible I love it
2: It sounds great bro you don't know this, but you are the person who inspired me to read the Bible from Genesis mm-hmm. to Revelation. I love it. I read the whole Bible. I've done it twice. Tell mm-hmm. my Bible is so beat up. And, and so is life. mine.
1: Mine, too. But I write in it. I scribble. I, read, I make notes. I all that.
2: You know, I style. <laughs> every time I read my Bible, I get a new word I get some new enlightenment you know I just don't know where I'd be without
1: it me either and I totally understand that people don't subscribe to it I get it I understand that people have gripes with it I will say this though I will stand on this to the day I leave this planet there is an anointing on those words and it's more than just what's written there it's what the spirit will open up your eyes to as you read it that's what it is it ain't just the words on the page that's just an entry point for the spirit to speak stuff that ain't on that page and give you deep but wisdom and knowledge of things that are not even on that page. Amen. Ain't too many books that can do that. I'm just saying. So anytime you want to come on and share that wisdom, let's do it because I am always going to be that person in your life who is inviting you to continue doing what God gave you to do. Like I want to be that guy in your life. You know, that says, well,
2: thank you, thank
1: you. Let's push because what Kyle said was very important. And I give that brother props for the love that he gave you in that clip. He's a blessing in your life because he's somebody that sees you and has always seen you for who you really are. Not everybody sees us, Judy. Yes. And I want to respond to something you said earlier, because what you were talking about is really, really true about coming back from not being able to walk and coming back from a very dark place. When you come back from illness or whether it's mental or physical or debilitation of any kind or just a dark place of any kind, and you come through that every minute on some level feels like overtime for you. You're just grateful to be alive.
2: (laughs) And I'm going to tell you, Robert, as I laid In the bed, I never had any fear about not being able to walk or recover Mm -hmm. because my question was, what are you trying to tell me? Mm -hmm. I knew that God was going to heal me and I knew that I would recover. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't going to recover until I got the lesson, until I understood what he was trying to say. And again, I'm going to go back to color purple. Mm-hmm. God is trying to tell you something. Okay, What are you trying to say, Lord? You know, ever since I was a child, a little child, going to Atlanta every year, then Every year when my grandparents would come up here to visit us in the summer from Atlanta. One thing that my grandmother, we used to call her Muddy. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Muddy would always do her rosary every day. We always had to go to the shrine when Muddy and Grandpa Leroy would come here. And in the souvenir store, the night before we went to the shrine, Muddy would say to us, you can pick out any rosary you want, and we're going to have breakfast in the cafeteria. And she always (laughs) mentioned breakfast. Mm-hmm. I didn't start doing my rosary. First of all, I didn't understand the importance of doing and saying and praying the rosary mm-hmm. because it never was made clear to me. You know, Mama would do her rosary every day, mm-hmm. you know, every morning. We would be sitting in the living room and I say, Mama, tell me how to do the rosary. And so Mama would let me use one of her rosaries. And even though I had gone to church, and, you know, they would do the rosary. I, I never would participate. Mm-hmm. And after I started praying that rosary, robber, mm-hmm. it seemed like God changed my whole life and my whole heart. I'm not trying to influence anybody else's religion or faith or belief. This is what worked for me as a Catholic. Right. Okay. I'm not saying that, you know, if you don't say a rosary, your life won't be blessed. Please don't take it that way. I'm just saying that for me, it has been a true blessing. Now, everybody I know knows that I'm bipolar. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I wish I had known my whole life. Right. I wish that I had known that I was bipolar because I used to get real, ooh, child, you know (laughs) Robert. (laughs) okay And when I found out... From talking to my psychiatrist was that I was medicating.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I was medicating, so all that liquor and all them drugs I was doing all them years could have been avoided. Right. But the thing is, is that the good thing is, is that I didn't die mm-hmm. as a result. Exactly. Of doing all that, acting a fool like that, because you know I
1: thought I was having fun well let me let me just and for me, l- let me slow it down right okay, there just ahead. real quick because you've said a lot just okay. to the place that you brought us of I'm glad I didn't die I've shared this before but never with you so I would like to share this you've inspired me to share this I'm testifying now if you will this is what okay what the deal was I remember one night I was living I lived in Bethesda for 16 years while I was working for Discovery I Channel love that apartment. yeah I was up there one night it was the wee hours of the morning and I was getting I I mean i was as high as high i could be to the point where i thought i was having a heart okay. attack or a stroke so i opened up the balcony okay. door and went and stood outside and just let the air beat all over my body and my face and just try to calm my heart rate down and just breathe Is what i was trying to do out there in the balcony okay and the holy spirit okay. spoke to me as if it was as clear as a bell ringing why are you trying to kill yourself right Like the angels just came and showed up right in front of me and said, why are you trying to kill yourself? And at that moment, there was a point of clarity that came to me. And I asked myself, why am I trying to kill myself? And the angel said, what has gone so wrong in your life that you are trying to kill yourself? And I thought to right. myself, oh, my God, I heard that in a way that I've never heard that before. And I became conscious that I was trying to kill myself, not consciously, but just the self-medicating that you talked about could have been toxic and right. overdose at any moment. How many overdoses do we see on the news every day? I was doing that for Thank 10 you, years. Ron. Any one of hey, those could have been me.
2: Listen, Robert, I was to that same place, except I went a step ahead of you and I really wanted to take my own life
0: Mm -hmm.
2: and I wanted to take my own life and I said to God I said I don't want the devil to win
0: Mm
2: -hmm. I said I remember I don't know if I heard a priest say it I don't remember where I heard these words from but I knew someone had said to me at one time if you say God help me you will get the help that you need Mm. Do you know the next morning, my mother, the apartment manager, the firemen, and the police were at my apartment door. Mm. God sent me to help that I need.
1: Praise God. Okay. Mm, I understand. After the angel showed me that, like, asked me, why are you trying to kill yourself? I still kept getting high that night, and I still kept doing drugs after that, but it was never the same. Once the Holy Spirit convicts you like that, and gives you that moment of clarity that breaks through the cloud and the fog of drug addiction, and I got the clarity in that moment, even if it only lasted for a second, but I heard what the Spirit was saying to me. Why are you trying to kill yourself? What has happened to you that has brought you to this? And when I've begin to look at that, that's when I stopped doing drugs. And I just want to say the reason why I brought that up is to underscore your points about faith because I did not go to a 12 step. And I'm glad for everybody who does. I did not. It was the sheer spirit and spirits of God and the angels that ministered to me and helped me day to day. And I'm not trying to talk about I'm not trying to talk
2: about 12 step, but it's a cult and
1: it don't work. Just that day to day process of not using drugs forced me and drinking forced me, although drinking was not really my drug of choice, but I just lumped them all in whenever I decided to get clean. It was really drug addiction Okay, (laughs) took me over the top. But just that day to day process and work of not doing it, it forced me to sit there. Right. On my apartment floor and deal with, as Michael Jackson sang, the man in the mirror. And that was hard and it hurt and it caused a lot of tears. And I had to sit there unmedicated and look at the damage and the wreckage that I had caused in my life. All the family meetings that I didn't go to because I was too high to get out the bathroom. All the love that I missed and the holidays I missed and just being absent from my own life and from other people's lives who love me, who wonder where oh, I was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what was I doing? Where right, was I? Why right, wasn't right. I where I was supposed to be or wanted to be and needed exactly. to be. So right. just looking at the damage right. of all that, it was very instructive and very humbling. Exactly. And the fight back from that, yeah. I can tell you that that was the fight of my life coming back from that. And a lot of people oh, don't yeah, make so it back from that. Yeah. A lot of people don't make it back from no. that. No. Yeah. So when I hear the whine and sing, millions didn't make it, but I was one of the ones who did. I know what they're talking about. I know what they're Thank talking you about. Jesus. Yes, yes. I know what they're talking about. Yes. So I'm just grateful to have yes. made it through that. And yet, that wasn't the only hurdle that I've had in my life. I've had others since then, oh, I, yes, Okay, yes. come on now. I'm just having a real conversation with we you made it through the,
2: We made it through the darkness.
1: Come on now. That we was made
2: it through the darkness. That was Thank one you of them. Lord.
1: But there were some other red seas that had to be crossed. I identify okay. with reaching that dark place and having to come back from that and so when you come back from that every day on some level it just feels like overtime because I remember how dark that darkness was oh yeah so even though there are problems and stuff now things that we've talked about in this conversation that are still things I ponder and look at every day none of it if it's not life-threatening none of it is gonna rise to the level of me beating myself up or punishing myself or driving me to self-destructive behaviors like I was doing all those years with my drug addiction
2: Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Because
1: now I know how to process it and deal with it in a way without trying to kill myself in the process of living. Earlier, I played for you some audio from an interview that I did with Kyle Coles five years ago. I want to pick up by playing some more audio from that same interview and take you back down memory lane and see if you remember this. And then we'll talk about it on the other side.
3: We followed each other around in Baltimore, apartment-wise. I went out first, and they followed, and took that apartment, and we built that apartment. And funny, 10 years later, we were in Atlanta, living in Atlanta, trying to catch the boom.
1: Okay, now let's see, if you, <laughs> let's see if you know this, Mr. Kyle Coles. Let's see if you know this. In 1993, Judy and I packed up all of our stuff, and I rented a van, and we put all our stuff in that van, and we drove all night long to Atlanta, where we were going to move. I had picked out an apartment just all online. And over the computer I had picked out an apartment Put down a deposit Got the phone number Everything And we drove down there All night long we, we got to Atlanta And the wee hours of the morning Got to the apartment building Before they even opened And they had already given me You know What unit was going to be ours And so while we were waiting For the apartment complex to open uh, We walked over And went into the apartment Walked up to the door The door was open It was filthy in there It was as if A, a nuclear bomb had gone off and I looked at Judy and I said I, I can't live here I'm sorry I cannot live here but when the apartment complex opened they said oh no worries we'll clean it all up and get it all ready for you and I was like uh uh-uh, uh I can't live here but Judy's but Judy stayed Judy stayed Judy took all her stuff out of that van and she moved Robert. into that apartment by herself and I got back in that van Kyle and I drove all the way back home to Washington by my damn self but she stayed
3: Robert you know, it's funny, Judy and I had the same experience in Baltimore almost right after college. And, well, first of all, speaking of 1993, 1994, I was in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. She moved from wherever she was at first to the Monroe Drive, where mm-hmm. we lived for mm-hmm. almost two years. Do you remember that? Yeah. <laughs> child uh,
2: moved to Atlanta a year after I moved there, mm-hmm. And he moved in with me in that apartment that you could not move in. And do you know that apartment was like a uh, party central? I had so much fun in that apartment, but the Lord and my mother moved me on home. Do you remember you picked me up from Union Station? When I moved home from Atlanta. I don't
0: remember you that. You met
2: my train, Robin. Really? You met my train, yes, yeah, and you took me home. Do you remember visiting me in Atlanta?
1: Okay, the pictures that I sent you this morning are when I visited you in Atlanta. Oh,
2: yeah, right, right, right. I made sure that I had sushi ready for you when you got down there.
1: Okay, but let's stay right there. When you look at those pictures, what do you see? Uh-huh. What picture can you paint about your life at that time? What do you see when you look at those pictures of yourself way back then?
2: Extended vacation. Atlanta was nothing but a vacation. I never had a permanent job. I went from temp job to temp job. The Atlanta is, I was the social butterfly. I organized all the activities. We went out. I wasn't teaching. I wasn't working professionally. I was just temping. And I wanted to be in Atlanta because the Olympics were coming to Atlanta. And I was trying to stay in Atlanta through the Olympics. However, I didn't even make it to the opening of the Olympics because the journey had ended. It was time to go home. Mama wanted both Tony and I to come home because we both were in Atlanta. And she knew what she was doing. And it was the best thing for both of us because we both were going from piece to piece Neither one of us was a serious relationship. It was just a good time
1: had by all by whoever. Well, but let's stay right there, and and, and go I'm going to press in, and you tell me when to stop, okay? Okay, like, go ahead. But I'm a press. How much do you remember about me coming to visit you and staying the night with you in that apartment?
2: I remember it. Okay you were getting high. You drank. Kyle and I were getting high, but I don't I don't think you were.
1: So are you saying that when I came to visit you and spend the night in that apartment, Kyle was living there with you? Yeah. This is one of the things that intrigues me about humanity and just about relationships and friendships because, and I've experienced this in other interviews too, going down memory lane with people that I was very close to at that time and remember being in the same place with them and have totally different memories of what happened (laughs) when we were there together. And this is one of those instances, my memories of coming to visit you there at that apartment do not include the sushi. I'm glad to hear you talk about that and to know that that was part of it because-
2: Do you remember all the people that were in and
1: out? Well, that's where I'm going. So just hear me out here because my memories include staying with you at that apartment. Was that the same apartment that I left you at in 93? Yeah. Okay. Yes. I remember coming back to that apartment and being there at night on the couch with a blanket over me. And I think there was a sliding glass door or a back door or something. But
3: oh, my goodness,
1: people were in and out all night long. They were not only they were not only in and out of the house, they were in and out of your room all night long. And I was like, this is and at that time I was not getting high with you or anybody. I was drinking, but I was not getting high. I was smoking Uh weed, but I wasn't doing anything more than weed and drinking. Drinking at that time in 1993 when I left you at that apartment I went back home right and in 94 right. I started with Discovery Channel by the time I came to visit okay. you in 95 I was on the corporate payroll with Discovery in a whole different track and I was not getting high I had left that life far behind me into the past I was on a whole okay. other vibe at that point I was at a place I saw fresh new possibilities that were not on the horizon yeah. when you and I were moving to Atlanta there was nothing on the horizon for me when I was moving to Atlanta but hope i was hoping for a future in atlanta blacks were moving down in atlanta at that time and i wanted to be like kyle mentioned the boom that's the boom we were migrating south again after all that turmoil of the 60s you know here it is the 90s and we're migrating south again and i was trying to be part of that so i had nothing but hope on the horizon for me there when that didn't work out i came home and back into my mother's house into the room that i grew up in and had to start all over again what are you going to do atlanta did not work out you quit your job you sold your apartment. You let all that go moving to Atlanta. Well, that didn't work out. So now you're back right. here. What you going to do? And that was a period of discovery for me to even get to discovery. <laughs> you know, I had to go through a lot to even get there. Yeah. So by the time I visited you in 95, All of that was behind me. So when I came to that apartment and I'm on that couch with the blanket over me in the middle of the night and the sliding glass door is going back and forth and back and forth and the door to your room is open and closed and open and closed. I'm thinking, what am I doing here? At this point in my life, I can be in a hotel and be very comfortable with my feet up ordering room service at this point. I don't have to be here in this place. I don't have to be here. That's what I walk away with all these years later. That is the lasting memory for me in my life that you and I had gone and did different directions and our paths had gone in separate places and I wasn't there anymore like you said it was party central for you at that point in my life it was not party central because when you came back from Atlanta and I appreciate you sharing that memory which I had forgotten of picking you up at Union Station when you came back from Atlanta but by that time I had an expense account so I was able to get you as you mentioned earlier a temp gig at Discovery and what I remember from that is you telling me one day Robert I can't do this I cannot do this. I don't want to do this. I don't know how you do this. I can't do this. Do you remember that? Yes. Yep. Mm -hmm. And
2: that's when, after you got me that temp gig, that's when I started working as an executive assistant with C. Delores Tucker in the Watergate band. Okay. I worked for her for six months. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, I'm still living with Mama.
1: I do want to close up Atlanta because you did say that it was the best thing for you to leave there. That your mother knew what she was doing when she asked you to come there. So, are you saying when I left there with that perception that our lives have gone in different directions? You were aware of that at that time. That your life was not in a place where you wanted it to be. Is that a fair assessment?
2: I was. That the party was over. The vacation
1: had ended. See, I heard that the um, first time, and this is where I'm oppressed. This is where I'm oppressed. Because I heard you when you said all yes. of that the first time. But are you saying that you were aware that I'm drinking too much, I'm doing too many no, drugs, um, my life is not where it should be. Where was your consciousness around those no. things? You're saying the party okay, was over, but what does that mean? Okay,
2: let me tell you. I can explain to you exactly what my consciousness was. My consciousness was I was asking my drug dealer in Atlanta, how could he get some drugs to me up in, uh, <laughs> you know, Lando? Right. Okay. Right. That's where my
1: consciousness was. Okay. I
2: see. I was nowhere near being through.
1: Got you. You were just moving locations. No, I wasn't. I wasn't. You were just moving locations
2: Yeah I was just moving yeah. locations Right I had to get reacclimated. Yeah And you know
1: resituated. I totally get yeah. it
2: To a new dealer mm-hmm. Who was going You know level like I was used to Cause I You know I never went on the street To find Neither life. did I I always had a drink
1: Me too yeah, He'd knock on my door Ring my bell ask to get, said, get buzzed up All of that have, Yeah And let me
2: tell you Something else All of my drug dealers Call me Miss Judy Right Okay They all call me Miss Judy. Miss Judy. They would put my groceries away for me. They would take me wherever I had to
1: go. Well, I have to say, at that point, that was one of the moments when I knew I needed to get clean. When the drug dealer turns to me and says, You know what, Robbie D? That's what the last drug dealer will call me, Robbie D. You know what, Robbie D? I really got to say that my kids have a better life because of you. I really look up to you, man. And I thought, Wow, if this drug dealer is looking up to me for this behavior, I got to get my shit together. This is not what I want to be looked up to for.
2: me stop is my last drug dealer said to me I wish my daughter would use this and I was like oh but you out here selling this mm. and you supporting your family <laughs> you know, let me let me do what I got to right say, okay?
1: exactly I hear you I totally you know, hear I know, you
2: and I was thinking I bet you wish you never
1: said that right okay right you said that to the wrong person you said it to the wrong yeah person. but
2: actually you said it to the right person right I get you because it was key
1: Yep, I get it.
2: It was part of the key and yep. getting me to the rehab, getting my bipolar diagnosed, mm-hmm. getting me through the journey that I had to go through for my spiritual renewal, my mental health, everything that I had to go through while I was to get to where I am.
1: Let's go back, brothers and sisters, to 1961. 1961, John F. Kennedy became the 35th president of these United States of America, succeeding Dwight D. Eisenhower. And on March 29th of that year, 1961, the 23rd Amendment to the United States Constitution was ratified by the states, extending to the residents of Washington, D.C. The right to vote in presidential elections. April 12, 1961, the Soviets put up the first human in space and that cosmonaut orbited the earth once. On April 23rd singer Judy Garland performed what would become a legendary comeback concert at New York's Carnegie Hall on May 4th, 1961 civil rights activists known as Freedom Riders the Freedom Riders began traveling on public buses along the interstate in southern cities to challenge the non-enforcement of federal laws that prohibited, really said they were unconstitutional, the segregation of those very buses. The following day on May 5th, 1961, as part of Project Mercury, the U.S. put up our first astronaut in space. And he did a 15-minute suborbital flight around the planet. And it was called the Freedom 7 mission. And on May 14th, just 10 days after they started, the Freedom Riders were firebombed. While on a public bus near Anniston Alabama and they were Beaten by an angry mob Of Ku Klux Klan Members KKK and a week later On May 21st race riots broke Out in Alabama and that State's governor declared martial Law in an attempt to restore Peace and order Three days later on May 24th 1961 more civil rights Activists those same Freedom Riders were arrested in Jackson Mississippi for disturbing The peace after disembarking from their bus on May 25th, 1961, in a special joint session to Congress, President Kennedy announced his goal to put a man on the moon by the end of that decade. So that's a bit of the atmosphere of 1961, and it was into that atmosphere, into that environment of great optimism and hope for the future, and perhaps even greater turmoil and civil unrest in what was then the present moment, that James Baldwin's collection of essays, Nobody Knows My Name, More Notes of a Native Son, was published by Dial Press in 1961, July of 1961. Now let me take you to one. Monday in time. One Monday. Lyndon B. Johnson, a Democrat, was President of the United States. The average cost of a new house was about $14,200. $14,200 would get you a house. The average annual income was $6,900. $6,900. 0, 0. That's how much the average working person would bring home each year. The average cost of a new car was $2,650. $2650 would get you a new ride. And on that one Monday in time gas for your new $2,000 car was $0.32 a gallon. The television show Batman starring Adam West had just premiered a few months before this particular one Monday in time and was hugely popular among television audiences. Actor Sidney Poitier was starring with actress Shelley Winters in the film A Patch of Blue, which was playing at movie theaters across the country on that one Monday in time. Much of the nation at that time was reading the book Valley of the Dolls by author Jacqueline Suzanne and the number one song in America on that one Monday in time was a tune by the Righteous Brothers called You're My Soul and Inspiration and at about three forty-nine in the wee small hours of the morning on that one Monday in time under the sign of Taurus I was born at Providence Hospital in Washington D.C.
2: We were born in the 60s. We came from another generation. <laughs> right. We was all about trying whatever, whenever, however. Yeah, you
1: um, were born in the early 60s, what, 61?
2: 61.
1: And I was born and in 66. You know,
2: during the period of those you know, free love, peace, it was all about getting as much sex as you could, getting as much drugs as you could. It was just a different time, Robert. You were born in
1: 1961. Okay. I was born in 1966. And so I hear you when okay. you talk about the free love, I associate the drugs and the free love and all of that with the 70s, which is when we were kind of coming of, we're like 9, 10 years old, 11, 12, we're coming of consciousness in that. But in the 60s, I associate that more with the struggle for civil rights and the death of a lot of our leaders, you know, King and X. The phrase black power was first used around 1966 by Stokely Carmichael. So that's the consciousness that I associate that I came into this earthly energy and I was born in Washington, D.C. So that's the consciousness that I come in and associate with.
2: It was a time in contrast to our parents because they were born in the 30s. And your parents were born in Pittsburgh. My roots go down to Atlanta. My father was from Aiken, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. I remember my father, my father that died when I was seven. I remember my father and mother taking us down to the Poor People's Campaign in D.C. It was the Poor People's Campaign on the Mall. Mm-hmm. And they had one of these black people in tents. These people were hungry and they were dirty. And Martin Luther King was trying to get them some help. Mm-hmm this is when a lot of legislation passed on the hill this was the late 60s you were probably like two one or two yeah and tony and i my brother tony and i we were like daddy why are these people down here sleeping in tents they don't have any water to wash Mm -hmm. they don't have any food and my father's Told us, he said, not everybody has it as good as you do.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And the reason why he took us down there was to make us understand and not think that everybody lived the type of life we do. And I mean, not that we were rich or anything, Robert. Don't get me wrong. We were just little class. Mm-hmm. The understanding was that there were poor people out here who didn't have bread, Right. Who were suffering.
1: Was that your biological father you said was from Aiken, South Carolina?
2: Yes, that was my biological father.
1: And what was his first name? Aiken, Booker. Booker.
2: B-O-O-K-E-R. Booker Tillman. T-I-L-D-H-M-A-N. I I love it. Martin. And my nephew, Spencer. Uh Uh-huh. His middle name is Tillman after my
1: father. I love it. That's very important. Thank God that happened that he's carrying that name from Mr. Booker Tillman Martin. That is a beautiful thing. I love it. I carry my grandfather's name, Wesley, and his father's name was Wesley. So Otto Wesley is my mother's father and John Wesley is his father. And John Wesley comes from the Methodist faith. So that's how the Wesley name came because the Wesleys started the Methodist faith. So that's very important. So with your parents coming from the South to the North, their migration was from the South from Georgia to prince georgia or to washington right. area you tell me when they came from georgia did they come right to pg okay. county or did they come this to washington my
2: mother and father the reason why they landed in dc mm-hmm. was to attend howard university okay my mother i think the year was 1953 that okay. she entered Howard. Mm-hmm. And then my father transferred into Howard. When they were at Howard, my mother was pledging Alpha Kappa Alpha, Alpha Chapter. And she was online with her lunch. And my father was the dean of pledges for Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity. Mm-hmm. The fraternity which Martin Luther King belonged to. So when he spotted my mother online, he sent one of his pledges over to invite her out on a date with him. Mm-hmm. And so that's how they started going out. After they graduated from Howard, they moved back down to Atlanta. Okay, And they got married and had Tony. And mama started teaching. Daddy got this job working in this shoe store. We were living on D Street and, southeast. and my father was the first black store manager. D.C. used to have this shoe store called Red Cross Shoes downtown on F Street. And he was the manager in Atlanta. Our family, we began our lives in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And so he moved on up to manager. They offered him the position of store manager downtown on F Street at Red Cross Shoes.
1: And what year was so that?
2: I was seven. So the year that Martin Luther King died. 1968. Yeah, it was, it was okay. 68. Okay. I was seven years old. Tony was eight years old.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Tony and I had to go to bed at a certain time. We had to be in the bed to sleep by 8.30. So in the bed, you, whether you sleep or not, mom put us to bed at 8.30. So a lot of times when daddy would get home, we would already be asleep and he wouldn't wake us up. One night, in the middle of the night, my Uncle Jay, who was like his brother, who was a reverend, a Baptist reverend, and this man was like six, 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 seven. 6'7" with a booming voice. And so he woke us up in the middle of the night one night. And we were like, Uncle
0: Jay, Uncle
2: Jay, where's are and Walter. V.L. and Walter were our cousins, Uncle Jay's children. So Uncle Jay didn't say anything. So we were like, where's Mama and Daddy? So, you know, Tony and I, we just having fun. We, We didn't know what the deal was. They lived close to us. They lived on Minnesota Avenue, which was not far from where we lived on D Street. So we walked down to their apartment on Minnesota Avenue, and Vita and Walter were wild away, so all of us started playing. When we got there, my Aunt Nette and Uncle Bob, my Aunt Nette was my father's sister, and Aunt Ruth, Aunt Ruth was Uncle Jay's wife. They were all sitting around the dining room table. Nobody would answer our questions. They would not answer our questions about where our parents were. So the next morning, mama comes back into the bedroom and she says, I have something to tell you. We were like, what do you have to tell us, mama? Just tell us. And she said, your father is dead. And we were like, mama, just stop lying. Where's daddy? Why are you talking about daddy is dead? And so she said he was in a car accident. This is what happened, Robert. There was a tree on the corner of the street where we lived and the street that he was turning on.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Daddy worked long hours, and he was doing inventory that night. He fell asleep at the wheel and ran head on into the tree and was killed immediately. Mm -hmm. He would always bring toys and stuff home for me and Tony. And he had a whole back seat full of stuff for Tony and I. So our first instance of death was as small children, seven and eight years old. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how it affected Tony right? because he never expressed this thought. Mm-hmm. But the way that it affected me was that I was mad at God for years because this was during a time when everybody in the black community, especially a Catholic school, I went to a Catholic school. Our Lady Queen of Peace. Mm -hmm. Well, we both did. And Mama taught at this school. And this was a time when everybody in the black community or everybody that I knew had a mother and a father. So it was not normal for single parent households like we were thrust into as a result of my father's death. After my father was killed like that, I was so mad at God, and so I expressed my anger one day. I was in the fifth grade. Now, this was four years later, and I was at a different Catholic school. I was at St. Francis Xavier on Pennsylvania Avenue, and I expressed Rest my anger one day, and the class was talking about God, and and I remember yelling out so loud, there is no such thing as God. Everybody in that class jumped on me. What do you mean there's no God? How do you think we have creed? How do you think we have this, that, and the other? And so I guess the teacher, she wasn't a nun, she was just a teacher, I guess the teacher told mama what i said mm-hmm. and so then that's when mama expressed that when my father was killed
0: mm-hmm.
2: she should have immediately put tony and i in counseling mm-hmm. every day and then, she would still say that especially during my periods of addiction she said i knew i should have put you in counseling a long time ago mm-hmm.
1: Now, I appreciate you talking about in such beautiful detail, remembering your biological father's death in such a tragic manner. I appreciate you sharing that. That was a very tender moment to hear all of those details, which I have never heard before in all of the years that I've known you. So I appreciate that. The other memory that I have of you telling me, and I don't know if this is true or not, but this is what stays with me from 1986 when I met you. A story that you bought a car and drove it off the lot and had an accident and then never drove again.
2: This was after I graduated from Morgan. Mm-hmm. Four or five different people tried to teach me how to drive, mm-hmm. including Calvin
1: McKenzie.
2: <laughs> Calvin McKenzie ended up paying a driving school. Right. When the owner of the driving school took me to get my driving test, because back then they just taught you the little test and you didn't have to go on the road or anything. All you had to do was pass little geographical test they had set up on the parking lot. So before he took me to get my actual license, I was taking the driving test. He said one thing that stuck with me forever. He said, you know, Judy, some people are born to drive, mm-hmm. and some people are
0: born
1: to
2: be driven. He said, you are born to be driven. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> <laughs> right. I let them help, like
1: what? Isn't that what the most beautiful that? way of saying that you are not a good driver? Like, that is a beautiful way to put that. Yeah, exactly. Beautiful yeah. way to put
0: it.
2: This is what happened. My mother was teaching, and one of her colleagues was selling a used car. It was a boat.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: I mean, that thing was so huge. It was a a big blue. I don't even know what kind of car it was. It was old, though. Uh Uh-huh was selling it for $300. So mama said, so-and-so is selling this car. This was in 1985. Mm -hmm. She said, why don't you go over to her apartment and take a look at it? So I went over to her apartment and looked at the car. I had the cash on me. And so we signed the papers and everything. She signed the car over to me. I gave her the cash. He gave me a key, and she said, are oh, you going to drive the car home? I had one of my line sisters in the car.
0: Uh-huh.
2: And Sherry said, Judy, why don't you let me drive the car since you haven't driven in so long? At that point in time, I hadn't driven in years. Mm-hmm. So I got behind the wheel of that car, Robert. That car started going backwards, and I didn't know what to She said, "Stop the car! Stop the car!" Instead of hitting the brake, Uh Robert, I hit the gas (coughs) pedal. Slammed into a parked car that was on the apartment complex parking lot, and we was an older couple. And they ran. out, look at what you did to our car. Look at what you did. Fortunately, I had insurance before I bought the car. Mm -hmm. So the insurance company took care of everything, and I didn't have a problem. I never drove after that, though. So. Okay. But I attempted. My god brother attempted to teach me how to drive that car. My mother's son from across the street from us and somebody else, my little best friend in the neighborhood, all, like, all of them tried to teach me how to drive. And everybody ended up with the same scenario that my driver instructed. So, so finally one night, my father. Calvin McKenzie was fed up. He said, if you're not gonna drive that car, sell that mess, that piece of junk, and get it out from in front of my house. I put in an advertisement for the car. Somebody answered the ad within like two or three days. And it was a man whose son was going away to college. He was going to be a freshman in college. And he came to look at the car. And he said, How much are you selling it for? I said, $500. Now look, I only bought it for 300 He came out, his son liked the car, they bought the car, and I made $200 off of it, and my father wasn't mad at me anymore. He didn't want that car in front of his house, is what it so was. So you made
1: a conscious choice at not- that time that you were not going to drive again?
2: I made a conscious choice at that time that I was not going to
1: drive. Because I met you when I was 20 and you were 25 and you gave me no inclination that you had any desire at all to ever drive again. I mean, it was completely clear to me that everywhere you went, you were going to be on a bus, a subway, a train or in somebody's car that you would not be driving yourself. That was always part of being with you was navigating your transportation. It was never going to be you coming to pick me up. That was never going to happen. It was always going to be me coming to pick you up or to meet you somewhere place that you had gotten to by bus train or somebody dropping you off there
2: and then you even walked you back further I was traveling in muddy footsteps because muddy never drove. My grandmother. Right. Mama's mom. Mama.
1: Even though part yes. of me is tempted to laugh and make light of that story of you hitting that car, the other part of me does realize and is sensitive too that that's a trauma. And it's a reigniting of a trauma and a re imprinting of a trauma that you had already known about and had affected your heart with your father, biological father, Mr. Booker. Right dying the way he did in the car so that was a trauma that was already in you that was re-traumatized when you hit the car yourself and god only knows god only knows how that was affecting the seed that would eventually grow into what became bipolar disorder for you god only knows how those traumas went into that brain and what that brain did with those traumas over the years some of the things that you've talked about that happened in your life after i don't think can be completely divorced from these very early traumas that you experienced in your life
2: no and that's why and I'm going to reiterate mama's statement that we should have had counseling immediately after my father's death but see back then it wasn't an option therapy and all of that especially in the black community you just dealt with whatever trauma you had to deal with however you had to
1: deal with it. Yeah, if i may be you more know? plain spoken just to really put it on the table therapy was okay. for white folks back then that wasn't even a possibility for us nobody went to therapy you didn't go to therapy no. you sat at that kitchen table no. with a bottle of vodka or some brown liquor and some reefer and what and whatever else you was doing cigarettes whatever was on the table with you and figured the shit out that's what you yeah. did you dealt yeah. with it the best way you could yeah. and And usually that generation, your mother comes from the silent generation, as does mine. They stuffed it down. They stuffed it down. They didn't even talk about it.
2: And And they kept a lot of secrets. Yes, a
1: lot. They
2: kept a lot of secrets. But my thing was this, Robert. When my psychiatrist diagnosed me as bipolar in 2008, Mm -hmm. they don't just say you're bipolar. You have to go through a whole lot of analytics. Mm Mm-hmm. You have to answer a whole lot of questions. It's a and diagnostic
1: process so, uh, that you go through to determine yeah, yeah, and to make a diagnosis a very, of bipolar.
2: Yeah, it's a very intensive diagnostic process Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and so as a result of the analysis he said to me you should have been diagnosed a long time ago and so of course my question to him was why are you saying that he said when you made your first suicide attempt Mm -hmm. in the 11th grade he said that should have been the biggest red flag for anybody
1: so the 11th grade was what year what year was that 1978
2: 1978 well is this something that you had thought about for a long time Mm -hmm. and i told him i said i thought about suicide because i knew exactly where the pills were i took a bottle of sleeping pills And I knew exactly where the pills were. And I looked in the medicine cabinet one day, and I saw that they were sleeping pills in the medicine cabinet. And I said to myself, I was like, oh, that's how I can go. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was during the week. We had all eaten dinner, and I had cleaned up the kitchen. And I was sitting down to my algebra 2 trigonometry homework. And that homework had me so in a tizzy. And I was like, I don't have to deal with this. I don't have to ever do homework again. I went upstairs, Robert. And I was thinking when I went upstairs, I was like, I won't be here tomorrow. And so I to my water. I took the whole bottle of pills. I did take one or two. I took the whole bottle and went to my bedroom and I laid down. The next thing I know, I was in a room. There were several doctors around me. And one of them said, oh, here she is. She's coming back. She's coming back. We got her. This is what was explained to me by my mother and my brother. My mother went in my room. I would sleep so deep that my mother would have to wake me up. I putting water on my face. Mm-hmm. So she came in my room to wake me up and I wasn't moving. I was going on to heaven. So young Tony got me in a car, took me to University of Maryland Hospital
0: mm-hmm.
2: and they popped my stomach. And so, after they pumped my stomach, they sent me to the psychiatric ward. Mm. Because anytime you attempt suicide, you're sent to the psychiatric ward. They don't send you to the regular part of the hospital. Mm -hmm. So, my psychiatrist said it was at that point that I should have been analyzed for bipolar.
1: Okay, so let's pause there. Because what we're talking about is 1978 in Prince George's County, black folks. Someone in the family is attempting suicide. It's not something that was on our map and we didn't really know to check and do these things. So I hear your doctor now. But back then, it was a different story.
2: The only people that knew that I attempted suicide was Tony Mama and Calvin McKenzie.
1: Right, people in the family.
2: Yeah, they didn't discuss that. They didn't even discuss it with people in the family.
1: This is a key point. What you just said is that they didn't discuss it even amongst the family members. It was kept in the house and not even with other family members. So that's how we dealt with things.
2: Right, right. It didn't come out until everything else came out about me being bipolar and this thing else.
1: So years and years and years. That was decades later from 1978. Right. Yeah. So that was a family secret, a silent agreement that was kept within that household on Rolling Ridge Drive in Sea Pleasant, Maryland. It was kept in that house. Then there became a period mid eighties. We start talking about things. Then the nineties came. We're hearing about more things. This era of openness continues where we become more conscious about these things. And then 25, 30 years later, it can all come out and be openly discussed. But I just want to underscore that that was a family secret that was kept for many decades. And all of our friends families have those we all have them that's trauma that's how we deal with trauma we stuff it down we don't talk about it we act like it doesn't exist and what you see is not us talking about it what you see is us drinking or smoking or doing drugs or acting out that's how you see us dealing you see all these symptoms but we never get to the root of the trauma that's causing these symptoms never especially at that time now this is a different era we're much more open to things but we're talking again about 1978 My favorite poem in the whole world is by a man named Paul Lawrence Dunbar. He wrote a poem called We Wear the Mask. Paul Lawrence Dunbar, We Wear the Mask. And that is my favorite, favorite poem ever. Paul Lawrence Dunbar was written in the late 1800s. I'm gonna read it for you real quick. We Wear the Mask. We wear the mask that grins and lies. It hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. This debt we pay to human guile with torn and bleeding hearts. We smile and mouth with myriad subtleties. Why should the world be overwise and counting all our tears and sighs? Nay, let them only see us while we wear the mask. We smile, but, O oh, great Christ, our cries to thee from tortured souls arise. We sing, but, oh the clay is vile beneath our feet and long the mile. But let the world dream otherwise. We wear the mask. Paul Dunbar. Wow. We've talked a lot about mental health over the 13 seasons. We've talked specifically about depression, which I've experienced throughout my 55 years. We have not talked a lot about bipolar. I have not had the opportunity to speak to someone who is aware that they are challenged with this experience of being bipolar, this disorder, if you will. So what does it feel like is what I want to understand. I understand the language of manic depression that has come into public consciousness where there's times when you're manic and time where you're depressed. That's what the bipolar is referring to
2: when you're not properly medicated your mind races it's hard to focus you want to calm your mind down so you drink Mm excessively now because they have found after an eight year journey it takes a long time Mm -hmm. to figure out the correct medication for your body chemistry when you get on the right
0: medication Mm
2: -hmm. your brain functions just like anybody else's now the manic Part is this manic is like you spend money excessively,
0: mm-hmm. keeps
2: buying things and they don't need it, you know, like buys a lot of shoes, buys a lot of bags. Mm-hmm. That's manic behavior because there's no way that you need, you will never in a lifetime use all that stuff, right? That's manic behavior. Now, I didn't have a depressed side of it because that's what my medicating was doing. Mm-hmm my self-medication was masked so and by the time i stopped self-medicating they had me on the medication Mm -hmm. that i needed to do that my main thing was the racing start i couldn't lay down and get a good rest right the inability to focus not being able to sit down and read a novel Mm Or books. Knowing that I used to love to read. I read stuff on the internet all the time. I read stuff on my Android. Mm-hmm. But I can take it in small snippets like that. One thing that I can say about why I had or have the mind that I have is because I used to devour books. Right. I used to devour books like you devour books now. Mm-hmm. I can't do it now. Mm-hmm. The only book I can devour now, and I mean I devour it, is my Bible. Mm-hmm. This is a story, if I hear that story one more time, <laughs> I'm a, we were in southwest Atlanta where we lived, in one of my grandparents' houses. My grandparents had a lot of property.
0: Mm-hmm. My
2: grandmother was a teacher, my grandfather worked for the post office. My grandfather graduated from Morehouse College in 1929, Mm. and my grandmother graduated from Morris Brown in 1932, I think.
1: Wow. And And that's Grandpapa Leroy, right?
2: Grandpapa Leroy was a Phi Beta Sigma, and Muddy... Annie Maude Island was a Zeta Phi Beta. Mm. So anyway, we sitting in one of the houses that Muddy and uh, Grandpa Leroy had us living in. And Mama's at the table teaching Tony to read. I don't know if you realize. Tony and I are the same age for six weeks out of it every year we the same age for six weeks okay Okay?
1: let's stop right there let's stop hold on hold on real quick real quick cheryl and i are she's april 12th 1965 i'm april 25th 1966
2: (laughs) another similarity
1: another similarity
2: anyway listen she's sitting at the table with tony beginning his first reading lesson teaching him how to read and she said i walk up to the table with a book in my hand i'm using the same voice she used. i want to learn how to read <laughs> <laughs> and you still look at me sometimes and say there's that little girl that came up to me and said i want to learn how to read <laughs>
1: That is hysterical. I would love to be there when she did that. (laughs) <laughs>
0: okay
2: yeah so anyway well let me just um, piggyback you know, on that because like- that's
1: a perfect place for me to piggyback because i gotta do it because okay, go ahead. when i was growing up the bookmobile was everything to me like i would be on the corner waiting oh for the bookmobile to drive up that's how excited oh. i was so i feel yes. you books were everything to me i feel you totally oh my
2: god now you know the sad part is that when you said bookmobile there are so many children that Don't even know what you're talking about.
0: Mm.
2: Can't even relate.
0: Yeah, that hurts. But,
2: um, that hurts. Yeah. So anyway, my mother had practice letting us choose every weekend what we were going to do, where we were going. And it had to be something cultural or it had to be the library. Like, we could go to the Kennedy Center. We could go to the Children's Museum. We could go to any of the museums on the mall, the zoo, or the library. We would go to the library about twice a month, Mm -hmm. and she would put this one restriction on us. She said, you can only take out as many books as you can carry. Child Tony and I would be looking in
0: that
2: <laughs> house, or apartment or uh, wherever we live for the biggest bag that we could find. And I would fill that bag up, problem. Mm-hmm. I know. And I'm going to tell you the way that I devoured books, and I told you my mother would put us to bed. We had a bedtime. Mm-hmm. But I had a flashlight. And so I was reading a book, and in one of my books, I learned that one of the characters would read at night in the bed with his flashlight or her flashlight. Mm. I said, Oh, that's how I can get away with that. When I had to go to bed at night, if I was reading a good book, which I always was, I would start reading with my flashlight in the bed. Wow. And so as a result of that, I strained. I was looking at the blackboard one day in the fourth grade, mm-hmm. and the teacher, she was from Trinidad. And she- she asked me to read something off the board. And I looked at the board, Robert, I couldn't see it. And I said, I can't see it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So of course, she thought I was trying to make the class laugh or whatever. So I got up from my desk, which you know, back then in a the Catholic school, you might get your knuckles pummeled. Doing <laughs> something like that. I don't
1: know nothing okay. about that. I'm public so school I, all oh the way.
2: God,
0: honey.
2: <laughs> oh my God, child, yes. I went up to the blackboard. And I read whatever it was. It was some type of passage. And so at the end of the day, like I said, Mama worked at the same school, Our Lady, Queen of Peace. So at the end of the day, she told Mama that I needed to get my eyes checked. And sure enough, when Mama took me to the eye doctor, I needed glasses. And I've worn glasses ever since. But it didn't stop me from having that same need to read. I would say my enthusiasm about reading Mm pretty much
1: ended, Robert, when I ended college. Okay. So when you say that when properly medicated, your brain functions like everyone else's, and yet there are these things that you cannot do now that you used to be able to do, you're not attributing that to being bipolar, are you? Because you are properly medicated uh -uh. now. Yeah.
2: That's something that I've lost that I'll probably never get back, other than being able to read Bible or it could be this i just don't want to do it right i'm just not
1: and when you were in the various periods of your life that we were talking about like 93 when we moved to Atlanta 86 when we first started hanging out and all the antics that we've talked about do you recall a period of your life where you or even in 95 when I came to visit you have there been periods in your life where you did have a vision and you were trying to become this thing like when you were a reporter for Prentice Hall did you have dreams that you were trying to go after when you were at Morgan State and all the protests and politics you were involved and the radio show and stuff? Were you trying to become something in your life?
2: Not anything extraordinary. (laughs) Right. Nothing. Nothing newsworthy.
1: Neither (laughs) was I. I wasn't either. I was just living and finding myself and trying to understand my skills and gifts and talents and all of that was just sort of right, right. juggling it all and seeing what it meant. Right, right. It wasn't until Discovery that gave me a clear focus and a clear vision with my life. When I got to Discovery Channel, I thought I could see the possibilities. You know how a plane is on the runway? And you can see that if you just stay on this runway and take off, and I got the job so I was taking off, and then I reached a point where I had leveled off because I was moving up and I was respected and had responsibility. You were there, so you saw some of the beginnings of that. That was the first place where I saw, if I can just, I can see possibilities here. I can work to become something here. Dreams begin fashioning themselves in that environment. Have you ever had that experience in your life?
2: No. I will tell you something that really got on my nerves, and that is people, people are asking me, when are you going to become a principal? Mm-hmm. And I'll be like, who wants to be a principal? <laughs> <laughs> who wants to do all that work? Come on now.
1: So even when you were no. at Eastern, which was a huge okay. school and a beautiful building, it was a yeah. big, big place. So even when you were there, yeah. there wasn't some top of the food chain position you were trying to get? No, sir. Okay. No. uh
3: uh-uh.
2: oh. No, honey. Please put me in a corner in the back, no cash, where well, it's not a lot of traffic, mm-hmm. um, and have my paycheck on time, please. Thank you. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was never, I was never overly ambitious, mm-hmm. and that's one reason why I, I had to leave. See the Lord Tucker. Because she kept promising me that she was going to give me a job as an executive assistant on the Hill. She said, I'm training you for the Hill. Every day, I'd be trying to go home at 5 o'clock. She would be like, where do you think you're going? I said, it's time to go home. He said, it's never time to go home. I said, what do you mean? He said, I'm training you for a job on the Hill. You have to get used to 10 and 12-hour days. I was like, oh, this woman, she is
1: completely bonkers let's stay right there let's stay right there because this is important it's important soul stuff that we're talking about i think it explains for those who may be interested how our paths sort of diverged in some sense and this is something that I've always and we're reflecting now that we're all these years beyond this time point because this is over 35 years we're talking about ago but I've always appreciated that relationships have always been important to you the quality of your life and what you wanted to do and the people you wanted to hang out with and how you wanted to spend your time that was more important to you which was very different for me because I haven't chose that when C. Dolores said that to me in my life I'd be like no problem I don't have a wife I don't have kids I'm all yours what we doing what's the mission let me dig in and I went whole wholeheartedly into my profession i was always the guy from the urban league to discovery channel and all the other places i've worked i'm always the first one there making the coffee and the last one waving all the married people with children goodbye at the end of the night because i'm working like i knew that that was going to be my life work
2: right right and i can understand that and respect it and to that end i would say different
3: strokes for different folks
1: right different soul stuff what we're made of how we're built it's just different
2: i mean you that was a part an inherent part of you that you probably inherited from your father because your father was a hard worker right from when having his own liquor store right working at that furniture company selling gold jewelry
0: Mm
2: -hmm. providing a beautiful home for his wife and family making sure that y'all had all the material things that you needed and i'm sure sugar i know him as sugar
0: right (laughs) i'm
2: sure sugar okay i'm sure sugar worked long hours to provide all that for you guys. He definitely wasn't doing it in no nine or five situation. Just like my father who died, you know, tragically, hitting that tree. Right. He had long hours. Mm-hmm. You know, managers have long hours. I do want to underscore know?
1: this point, though, because what I'm saying that I admire about you, I just want to make it really plain for myself and for you and for the people. When I would go to meet you, like okay. after work, even back in the '80s, before I even found "quote unquote" career, but in '86, '87, '88, '89, when I used to go meet you after work, I was always impressed by right. the fact, even though I'm a friendly dude, and even though I might be a uppity black person, I'm, I've been friendly and I have manners because that's the way I was raised. But you would have relationships yes. with the bartenders and the owners. And I think his name was Calvin or Clyde. I mean, y'all were friends and y'all talked and everywhere we went, you had these relationships that were more than surface and you were there every day or every other day or three times a week. So you were able to build these relationships with these people. And I always would step into your world and admire that you had that because I never had any of that. I was friendly and I knew the person's name who poured my coffee, but that was about it. I was grabbing that coffee and going to my desk and doing what I had to do, you know, and cranking out that work. So it was a very different experience being with you. And I that that was important to you to have those relationships,
2: and it was very important to, and it still is. The relationships that I have now are more quality based. Mm-hmm. As you get older, you tend to send out those influences or people. Who
3: aren't adding to your
1: spiritual or mental growth. Let's stay there. I appreciate those experiences that you've had. I've had experiences too. I'm pointing out a distinction in our paths that I appreciate about you.
2: You should learn life lessons from a wide variety of people. Right. And God shows people in your past for you to learn your lesson.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I would rather have learned that lesson in my 20s. Right. Than, that, than me in my 60s still trying to figure something out. I don't have those issues now because I'm clear on the lessons or the lessons, I should say. Mm-hmm. That God was teaching me And Without those experiences I would never Have learned Or gleaned What was being stated Mm
1: -hmm.
2: You have to go through Some stuff To get to some stuff
1: So true So true
2: If you don't go through Nothing How you gonna get Some
1: Amen Listening to you talk It is Remarkable to me That Even though you and I Did not meet Until I was 20 And you were 25 We grew up Within two miles of each other. We went to the same high school. You were there five years before I was. The same high school. And as you tell your story. Of how you and your parents. Got to Prince George's County. You mentioned right around the time of 1966. That Vita and Walter. Lived on Minnesota Avenue. Which was right around the corner from D Street. Where you lived. Minnesota Avenue. 3528 Minnesota Avenue Southeast. Is the house that I was born into. In 1966. In 1966, when I was born, my parents owned a house on the corner of Minnesota and Crawford Place in Southeast. It was 3528 Minnesota Avenue. That's where I was born. So our stories connected even at that time. I can go even deeper. You talked about your father working Mm -hmm. at Red Cross Shoes on F Street in downtown Washington. My father worked at Julius Landsberg Furniture Company on 9th and F Streets. They may have even known each other. Two black men selling in retail (laughs) at that level. They might have even crossed paths. We don't even know So my point is that Our stories intersected and crossed Look how God was weaving those paths Even though we didn't know it You're 61, I'm 55 We're reflecting back on this All of the information that you just gave is new for me So this is the first opportunity that I have to reflect Of how our paths were weaved together Long before we physically even met one another
2: Isn't that something? It's amazing It's amazing It really is amazing We walked the same street
1: Yes we did Yes we did That's the point. (laughs) We walk the same streets. Your parents came from the south to the north for education to go to Howard University around the time of 1953. My parents came from the north, from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to the south which effectively is below the Mason Dixon line. So Maryland is the South, but my parents came from Pittsburgh in 1962 to Washington DC, right? So they made a Southern migration. Your parents made a Northern migration. Now, right around the early sixties, my parents were married in 1962. You were born in 1961. Your parents had come for education. They married in Atlanta. Tony was born there in 1960. And somehow between 60 and 61, they made a Northern migration again, back up to the Washington DC area where you all lived on D street. At that, time we were living yeah. right around the corner on Minnesota Avenue my parents had been married yeah. so around that time that was the first generation that because this was the civil rights era that was the first generation our parents that even though they may have been treated poorly by white folks it was more subtle see the generation before them was getting the overt lash your parents parents grandpapa right. Leroy and them yeah. they were getting some treatment that your parents weren't getting in Washington D.C. in the early 60s and neither were mine it was more subtle because there was this force, this opposition called the Civil Rights Movement coming up against them. If you fast forward to the years that you talk about, 1968 and your father at Red Cross Shoes, the laws began to change around the early 70s, the EEOC laws. So that meant that there were certain amounts of positions that had to be filled by people of color and women. So at that point, our parents were able to go from where they lived in Washington and this is leading to a question for you, because in 1970, we left Minnesota Avenue and migrated into The suburbs into Prince George's County. So, at what point did your parents leave D Street and get to Rolling Ridge?
2: Okay. When my father died in 1968, my mother moved us down. You know, there were some fabulous apartment complexes down in Southwest on the water.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Mama moved us into an apartment in one of those buildings. As a matter of fact, that's where we met Hubert Humphrey. Every time Tony and I would go out riding our bikes, we would see Senator Humphrey and his wife. And we'd be like, I said it to Humphrey. That's when he was running for office, too. Mm-hmm. They would talk to Tony and I for like 15, 20 minutes. We were at that apartment in Southwest for a while, but Mama felt a need to immediately leave that area. Mm-hmm. Because she used to put our and uniforms in a dry cleaners down there in Southwest. Mm-hmm. and so one day she went to pick up our clothes, and the man behind the counter back then—black people owned those establishments—and
0: mm-hmm.
2: he told her that my coat had been stolen. So you know, Mama was—he was tight. Money was tight. Right. So, do you know about two or three days later, you saw a little girl with the coat on <laughs> running down the street. Oh, awesome. I was like, Mama, she got my coat on. From that apartment complex, we moved to Marlborough Plaza Mm -hmm. in D.C., Southeast D.C. Now, back then, Marlboro Plaza was another luxurious apartment complex. It was middle-class professionals. Mm -hmm. And that point in time, when we were living at Marlboro Plaza, that's when Mama began dating Calvin McKenzie. And so, I would say we were at Marlboro Plaza. This 1971 when she began dating him okay and shortly after they met and hit it off immediately he hit it off with tony and i we were a family before it was legal and i was calling daddy daddy before they got married mm-hmm. and so they began looking for houses sometimes they would take Tony and I, oftentimes they wouldn't, because when they would take Tony and I house hunting, Tony and I would get lost and be all in people's cars and just being nosy and being kids.
1: Y'all were on an adventure.
2: So we was on an
1: adventure
2: tell <laughs> looking for places to hide. Right. So anyway, one day, mom and daddy came home, and they said they found us a place on Roller Ridge Drive in uh, Prince George County, Maryland, and that we would be moving soon. And you know, back then, black people didn't rent no U-Hauls or nothing. You got movers with some big trucks. The movers came, and they packed everything up. All you had to do was have the box labeled what room stuff go where we moved into Prince George County, Maryland back
1: then it was C plus Mm -hmm. now they
2: call it
1: Capitol Heights what year was this this was
2: 1972
1: 1972 okay so we got there on Edenville Drive in Prince George's County in 1970 January of 1970 is when we made that migration over from Minnesota Avenue to Edenville Drive so that was a time when that migration was common that was happening with a lot of black people at that time because remember in 68 that you talked about that was the riots it had burned out a lot of Washington so a lot of black folks yeah, was looking to yeah. get out of there and then these laws had changed yeah. and there were more corporate jobs yeah. available and some money started opening up right around that time as a result of that destruction I believe and the early and 70s and is I'ma when that migration something. really kicked off
2: I'm gonna tell you something about PG County this is something that I learned from my godmother her family had been out here in PG County since before 65 mm-hmm. so they was out here with red Wow. The she said, tell when they started rioting in 68 in D.C., burning stuff down the stadium, she said, those police on the line in Coral Hills, Maryland, and across Central Avenue, and across Central Avenue, every place where you could enter P.D. County from D.C., they were lined up guns drawn.
1: Right, you ain't coming in here with that.
2: And that's why there were no riots in Prince George's County. Mm-hmm. Because they weren't having it. Right. They were not having it. But yeah, shortly after the riot began the migration, and see with the migration tend to be PG County busing affected public junior high and high school mm-hmm. because they wanted to even out the blacks and whites mm-hmm. so in the middle of my 6th grade year I was bused from Linden Hill High School to Francis T. Evans on Andrews Air Force Base mm. and that was the first time in my life, Robert, that I had ever studied around that many white people before. You know what I learned from that experience was that they were no different from me. Right, because up until that point in time, I had never interacted with white people like that. Mm -hmm. Even though I went to a Catholic school in D.C., there were only two white students in the whole school.
0: Oh wow! Okay.
2: Yeah, and I really didn't interact with when I went to Francis T. Evans. I was like, they're not scary. Yeah, you can be yourself around them. It was a lot. It
0: was a lot
2: that I learned.
0: (laughs) Uh, it
2: was a lot that i learned from buster and let me tell you one thing another thing it was a lot that they learned from me mm -hmm. because they learned how intelligent and well-read a black child could be Mm -hmm. because just like i had never dealt with white people they didn't have the experience of black people I busted all of their preconceived notions because I was the really one getting all the awards. I was in everything. I played my flute. I was in action. I was very versatile.
1: I remember, I think it was the ninth grade, Mr. St. Ledger's government and politics class in Surrattsville Junior High School in Clinton, Maryland, where okay. we were busted. 30 minutes off along the beltway when there was a junior high school Walker Mill junior high school was walking distance I could walk up the hill through the path and be on the football field but I got bussed 30 minutes on a bus all the way to Clinton Maryland so I hear you with the bussing yet another commonality that bussing for me started in the first grade see you were halfway through the 6th grade I was halfway through the first grade at John Bain Elementary School where I walked to school every day and came home for lunch every day right. and walk back to school every day right. and walked at home at the end of the day every right. day I had to leave there and stand at the corner and wait for a bus to go two miles down the road to Richie Elementary School that was my first right. experience right. with busing and then the second right. experience was right. with junior high school so all of that being said I hear you on the love of books and on the whole busing experience I'll leave you with this memory see if you remember this remember the pool party we went to and you scratched your knee going down the driveway and I yeah. passed out on the couch and they had to wake me yeah. up so that we could leave there the next day yes sir i remember this at that pool party you and i were sitting at a table and i forget who said it but they could see the interaction that we had and they leaned over to us and said y'all gonna marry one another because you should marry your best friend now we didn't get married but you ended up marrying your best friend when you married kyle
2: exactly
1: but do you remember that pool party when that person said that to us
2: oh yes that was in Fort washington
1: yep on that okay. note, I thank you for your time. I thank you for your stories. Yes, I thank you for your patience. All that.
2: And I look forward to talking to you on a more awesome basis.
1: And we'll do it again sometime because
2: soon. It's, so, it's always so great. I love you. I
1: love you back. Enjoy your day.